Okay, if we would uh, gather this direction and let's stand and enter into the presence of the Lord together. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Father. We love you today, Father. We honor you today. We glorify you today. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Yetie kolara talarata bahaya. Yekie kalororobukura talarata bahaya. Yekie kolorotororotobukura tabahaya. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise God, praise God, praise God. Praise God, praise God. Hallelujah. Praise God. Brother Gross, do me a big favor. Step there and remind my wife that I, I don't have any of my drink yet. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, I apologize for leaving while you were praying. Um, about two-thirds of the way through, I I guess I had overdone it a little bit. Uh, I couldn't have toned it back if I wanted to, and I ended up with a severe headache, and my eyes were actually hurting. So I needed to go get horizontal and let everything <laughs> calm down a little bit. I, I didn't really want to leave that, but um, <clears throat> at the same time, I'm trying not to uh, be stupid either, so... <laughs> One more thing I will mention afterward, just so you can be thinking. Uh, we have a room reserved at a uh, new restaurant in town after the afternoon session. For those that would like to go eat together, it is, it, it'll be your bill. But we do have a place that's reserved for us where we can eat together if you'd like to do that. The food is reasonably priced. They got a uh, a decent menu for that kind of place, and uh, I will be mentioning it again, but uh, I, I don't know about you, but I don't plan on eating a whole lot between sessions if I'm going to go eat a meal then. But So anyway, I just thought you <clears throat> I'd let you know that now, and you'll be hearing that a couple more times. Everyone's invited uh, if you'd like to go. I'll be giving the details after the second session. Okay. Uh, if you would permit me, I'm going to read the total text again. I thank you very much, Brother Gross. Uh, from Acts chapter 26, beginning with verse 13. At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, 
I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of of these things which thou hast seen and of those things uh, in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith uh, that is in me. You may be seated. Uh, We're going to focus this morning session at the least uh, on looking at this specific passage of Scripture, uh, verse 18. I remind you again that according to the United Bible Society Translators Handbook, uh, these three scriptures, the three verses, 16, 17, 18, actually are one single sentence in the Greek, and they were all spoken directly by uh, the voice of God speaking to Paul from heaven uh, as he was confronted when he was still Saul on the road to Damascus. Uh, And I'd like to try really, 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 really briefly to bring the two other verses uh, very briefly into uh, context so that we know exactly where we're going from here. The Lord specifically told Paul that he had he had visited him on purpose. He had he had come to him. Uh, he came for a purpose to call him to his purpose. And uh, he said, "I've called. I've come to make thee." And we we studied that the Greek word there, "make," is uh, is or it means uh, to uh, to appoint. Uh, a commission, and to these to two offices. These two offices were minister and uh, witness. And the first word minister is a very specific Greek word, which means someone who goes and does and says what they're told to do, and they do not initiate that action on their own. And then, second of all, this next verse, the Lord said, uh, continued to say to Paul or Saul that. He had chosen him out from out from among the the Jews and the Gentiles to commission him to send him back to them. That's why even when Paul uh, was known as the apostle to the Gentiles, when he went to any new city, he always started in the synagogue the Jewish synagogue in that city, uh, giving them the opportunity to believe or reject what he was preaching before he went to the Gentiles, even though he was the apostle to the Gentiles. He always did that first. Always. 
So, uh, then we get to this verse. This verse is a specific, detailed plan of action for prayer to enable the lost to come to salvation. Uh, I don't want to bore you to death, and I don't want to overburden you with too much information, but almost every word in this verse is very full of very important meaning. Uh, And I'm not implying that the Holy Ghost ever said even one word that wasn't important, because obviously the Word of God says that every jot or tittle that would be equivalent to a dot on our I and a crossbar on our T uh, is is forever settled in heaven. It's just that some words, when you read them, they obviously mean what what they mean. But the translation from the Greek, which is a very specific language in the English, uh, for readability's sake, uh, there is many times some of the the full flavor and force of that particular word chosen by the Holy Ghost is lost in translation. So uh, I'd like to look at that a little bit. If you allow me, please, I will read uh, uh, the Young's Literal Translation first. Uh, t- this verse 18 is translated, To open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the authority of the adversary unto God for their receiving forgiveness of sins and a lot, which is a portion or share, among those having been sanctified by faith that is toward me. Praise God. Uh, Weiss expanded translation, which is one of my two most favorite translations to use. It's a very, not a very widely known translation, uh, but in my comparison of translations, the two translations I rely on for trying to get the full meaning out of just reading a text uh, is amplified, is the amplified, and Weiss, and that's, that's spelled W-U-E-S-T. And some of the, in the last few years, many of the Bible uh, programs, Bible software programs that you can now buy. You can now get Weasts uh, as a an add-on in those programs. Uh, and, and, and Mr. Weast is doing the same thing that the, uh, the uh, Amplified people are trying to do. He's not translating for readability. He's translating for literal literalness. And, and his translation is not easily read because he, he really tries to bring the full effect and force of that word into the English language. So I'm reading now from his translation. I will send you on a mission to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the authority of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith, which is in me. Uh, Also, I'd like to read God's word translation, God's word translation. 
you will open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from Satan's control to God's. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins. Then, that's a, that's a, 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 a conjunction that shows order of time, chronological order. Okay? Notice, according to Jesus, sinners cannot be brought to forgiveness of sins until first they're turned from darkness to light, from the authority of Satan unto God, uh, etc. Well, first of all, till first they, their eyes are open from blindness and then they turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God. Then, according, again, God's words translation, then they will receive forgiveness of their, for their sins and a share among God's people who are made holy by believing in me. You have to remember when you're reading this verse, this isn't Paul talking. It's not Luke speaking. It's Jesus being quoted. So when he says, when he says, uh, in the King James that they would receive inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. He's not, it's not Paul saying the faith I have in me. It's Jesus saying they're sanctified by faith placed in me when they put their faith in me upon me. And so therefore, of course, Young says it this way, by faith it is toward me. We says it sanctified by, sanctified by faith which is in me. And God's word translation says, uh, God's people who are made holy by believing in me. Praise God. A, a, a parallel passage to this in the Old Testament is a prophecy of what God will do, uh, when the Messiah comes. Isaiah 42 is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. First of all, of John the Baptist and of him, the voice crying in the wilderness, who will also, uh, show the way for the coming Messiah. So this is what it says, uh, Isaiah 42 verse 6, I the Lord have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for a light of the Gentiles, verse 7, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. Verse 16, I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them and not forsake them. Now, as you study that and many other places, especially in the three major prophets, uh, you will find that the things that Jesus said to Saul on the road to Damascus were all prophesied as essential parts of the ministry of the coming Messiah. And Jesus made it very clear that he did these things. In fact, if you and I go to 
the book of Luke, uh, chapter one, and we read the, uh, the, the statement of, uh, of, uh, Zachariah, the, the, uh, father, excuse me, uh, wrong book. The, the father of, uh, John the Baptist, uh, you, did I say Zechariah? Yeah, Zechariah. Uh, if you get down to like Luke chapter one and, uh, and, uh, he is prophesying about his son. I thought I had it there and I missed it. Okay. Okay. And, uh, Zechariah, because of his unbelief, when the angel Lord spoke to him, he was struck dumb and couldn't speak. All through the the gestation period of his child and his wife's bear in her womb, it had been barren, and then the child is born, and everybody's assuming the child will be named Zacharias, and they speak to him and say, "What's the child's name?" And for the first time in that period of time, he was able to speak, and this is what he said. He said. Uh, Verse 63, I'll read that starting there. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 63, uh, and verse 62. And they made signs to his father how he would have called, have him call, or what, what his name would be. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote saying, his name is John. They, and they marveled all, and his mouth was open immediately, and his tongue loosed, and he spake and praised God. And fear came on all that dwelt round about them. And all these sayings were noised abroad throughout uh, all the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his covenant, the his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of thy life. And thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge and salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit was was in the deserts till the day of his showing to Israel. So you see, the prophecy of John the Baptist was to prepare the way of the coming Messiah and the coming Messiah's whole purpose was to take people out of darkness into light. So this is both both from the scripture I've read to you from the Old Testament and also from the 
from, from the prophecy of John the Baptist and his purpose and, and, and the purpose of the one who would come, you can see how very critical the words of Jesus to Saul was in this last part of this sentence that's contained fully in verse uh, 18 of Acts chapter uh, 26. So the, the point I'm trying to make is, The first Sunday of my life, I was taken to a United Pentecostal church. My mother was a member of the United Pentecostal church, Pensacola, Florida, when I was born. I was born on a Monday, and she took me to two services on Sunday. Except for my four years at the Naval Academy, when I had to go to chapel because there was no United Pentecostal church uh, in the state of Maryland, to my knowledge at that time, at least, except for way out in western Maryland near, that was really more West Virginia than Maryland. Uh, except for those four years, I've attended only a United Pentecostal church in my entire life. I'm not faulting anybody. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. I'm simply telling you the facts. I n- never heard any, not one single message in my lifetime, preached about the responsibility of the church. It's all my growing up years. I never heard one single message preached about the purpose of the church, of the coming Messiah, and then of the church doing the ministry of the Messiah to bring people out of darkness. We all automatically assumed, apparently, that the Lord was going to do that independent of us my question is this if he was going to do it independent of us why did he bother to knock a man who was completely contrary and opposed to everything he stood for knock that man out of a saddle and while he's in the dust of the earth blinded by this light and getting the shocking revelation that the very one he was fighting so hard against was actually the God he had always worshipped. Can you imagine the stuff going through his mind? Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Oh, I, I mean, it's good that, good thing that thoughts essentially travel at the speed of light. Because the number of different things going through that man's head at that one moment's time. I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. Can you imagine how many horrified faces of believers in their dying throes and the pain of death flash through his mind with the awareness that he was responsible for that. And that what he thought he was doing for God, the cover had just been pulled off and he now realized he was doing this against God. Can you imagine that? You talk about your life flashing before you? When everything you thought you were and everything you thought you stood for and everything you were absolutely 100% sure of 
was instantly, totally, completely changed in a moment by one short statement, I am Jesus whom thou persecutes. So we have to believe <laughs> that in the the point, poignant, is that, I can't say it, poignant, is that right? In that poignant moment, in that moment so full of emotion and meaning and importance, first of all, importance to Saul, but us looking back, importance to the world and the kingdom of God. That if God is going to bother to speak to a man audibly so that an entire group of people heard the audible voice, even though there was a portion of them that didn't understand because he was speaking in Hebrew and they didn't speak Hebrew. That whatever Jesus spoke audibly to this opposer of the church and persecutor of Christ has to be of an importance that it is impossible to overstate it. You got the picture? Well, I'm glad you do, but I'm going to say it again. I mean, I, I, I don't even know why it came to me, but the other day, uh, David, the, the pastor was preaching. I'm sitting here, and it just came to my mind. Do you know in God's mind what the chief, chiefest of all sins is that this world could commit? Think a moment before you answer that. What is the chiefest sin that this world could commit? You don't have to guess. The Bible says. Paul said, I am the chiefest of sinners. And yet he was a devoted Jew that kept all the law. So whatever sin it was he committed... It wasn't a violation of the word of God... As communicating the old covenant. What was the chiefest sin that a man could commit? Whatever actions and words he says and does against the church, the body of Christ. Because you can't persecute the church without persecuting the person of Christ himself. I don't, that's not my opinion. It's what it says. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And in Paul's mind, he was never persecuting God. He was persecuting heretics, blasphemers. But when he had those blasphemers put to death, when he railed against the church, fought against the church, he came to the understanding that that made him the chiefest of sinners. 
No wonder the scripture says, no weapon that's formed against you shall prosper. Why is it that the church is hiding? We can't stop the world from coming against us. You know, killing babies is a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing. And now that our government allows babies to be killed in the last, in the third trimester, the blood is on the hand of every politician that has backed that, promoted that, passed it. But it's also upon the hands of the people that voted them in. That's why judgment is coming on this nation. It's coming on this nation. But it's coming on this nation connected with a revival. Because God is not unrighteous to forget your work of faith and labor of love. And the great, great majority of all dollars given to preach the gospel throughout this world in the last 100 to 150 years has come from this nation in Canada. And God always, this is God's rule, he always shows mercy first in direct proportion to the wrath that's to follow after. He doesn't show mercy during wrath. He shows mercy before the wrath. That's his pattern through from Genesis to Revelation. Noah. Lot. He always shows mercy before judgment, before wrath, in proportion to the wrath that's to come. Always. And there's judgment coming on this nation. And there's going to be a revival that's going to divide this nation like nothing's ever divided it. A real down-to-earth goodness, old-fashioned New Testament apostolic revival that's going to sweep tens and hundreds of thousands of people into the kingdom. In fact, if God doesn't do it, he's a liar. That's another subject for another day. But you hear me right now. The Lord didn't just make that a promise. He swore with an oath he would do that. And he swore with an oath against his own deity. And he said, if I don't fulfill this promise, I'm not God. Promises are conditional. They always have an if. Promises the will of God. Promises what he's willing to do. But I've got to believe it and act on it and receive that promise. But God took it out of the realm of promise when he swore with an oath. Now he, he didn't make it about us. Now he made it about him. Meaning, it didn't matter who he had to rise up to fulfill the promise through. He was going to raise up whoever would believe him and fulfill his promise because he's God. Because if he doesn't do it, he said, I'm not God. But there's wrath coming. It's not coming. There, there's not, uh, uh, there's not mercy coming to this nation ahead of wrath given to a church, uh, uh, with a church that's hiding in walls, hiding behind walls. With an apostolic church that's copying the world with a ministry that's, that's 
90% facility focused rather than field focused. The field is the world. The harvest doesn't take place in the barn. It takes place in the field. And you can't have a harvest, you can't reap a harvest while all the laborers are standing around in the barn protecting themselves from what they may experience out there in the field. So God take this, took this man, the chiefest of sinners. And of course the, wor- the, 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 the tragic thing about this was, while he was the chiefest of sinners, he had no clue well, that's not totally true. No, that's not true. I got to back up on that one. He was a young man. He stood and held the coats and watched a true man of God die and heard his words. In fact, the way Stephen died which so totally contradicted the way that Saul thought a blasphemer and a sinner ought to die, that it apparently made Saul so mad he wanted to stamp out all of them. I wonder how many other people, Christians, he watched die like he did Stephen. So here this man is, raging in his righteous anger, traveling down the road, with a commission from both the Jews and authority given him from the, from the Roman uh, occupiers to go kill Christians. And he's knocked on the road with a bright light and the power of God. And I'm saying it to you again. In that moment, like few other moments in the entire history of the world, There are few other moments in all of the scripture that even compares with the the, the significance of that moment. The words that Jesus himself spoke audibly to that man, especially considering who that man was and what he'd been doing, has to be taken into the heart of every believer and every preacher And it has to become a conscious focus of our lives or we're not being faithful to God. You know what? I could say to my wife, I have been absolutely 100% faithful to you every day we've been together. And that's really true. I can say I've never even looked, even allowed another woman to even come across my gaze. I've never even had any thoughts to anybody else. I have been absolutely 100% faithful to you. I have completely separated myself in thought, emotion, and in actions from every other female in the world. If I told her that, what would, what do you think her reaction to that would be? Do you think she would say, oh, that's so wonderful, and I thank you for that, and, uh, that's enough for me? 
we were out of town the other day. I forget where it was. I think it was uh, after the ladies' conference. and uh, We walked in a restaurant. And it's one of those many restaurants today that has a, a bar on one side and a place to eat on the other. And the lady taking us to our table said, uh, just want you to know it's happy hour because it was like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It's happy hour. And, uh, oh, okay. All right. Uh, and so, um, I don't know why it hit me so strange that day. Oh, I just remember where it was. It was November the 1st. <laughs> I had taken her out to dinner for our anniversary that day, our wedding anniversary. And, uh, we, we were, we were before the regular dinner hour. In fact, we were the first people in the restaurant part of it. There was nobody else at any tables, but we we were there. And we had to pass through the bar area of the restaurant to get to the restaurant area. And you could still, from where I was sitting, I could kind of see some of the people. And it just hit me I, I, like never before. And I said to her, isn't it amazing that the people who participate in happy hour are not. If I have to get off from work and go by someplace and have a couple of drinks before I go home, I'm not happy. Because if you're happy, you can't wait to get home to your wife and family. And so if I said to my wife, I've been absolutely 100% faithful to her. That's not, a, that's, I promise you that's not, a, <laughs> that wouldn't be enough for her. Because she's going to want more than me being separated from other women. Much more. She's going to want, she's not, it's not good enough for me to turn my eyes away from other women. She's going to want my heart and eyes turned toward her. I believe in holiness. I believe in the principle of holiness. I believe in the expressions of holiness that, 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 that are easily proven. They're easily proven in the word of God. It's there. It's in there. But I am so concerned that in my lifetime, we've preached holiness as equivalent to relationship, and it ain't. It's not anywhere close to it. That's why Jesus said it is possible to be a whited sepulcher, all spiffy and clean on the outside and full of dead men's bones on the inside. Because it's... Because the word holy, as I said yesterday, is supposed to be a separation from and a separation unto. You do one of those, you haven't done it. You, you're not, you're not holy yet. You're separated from, but separated unto. You're given to Him. She's not just going to want me to be separated from other women. She's going to want me to be given, me given myself holy 
W-H-O-L-L-Y, to her. She's going to want that. She's going to expect that. She's going to want to to see the twinkle in my eye at times. Yes, Brother Shelton, I found out you're just watching. Because I forgot to turn my phone off. (laughs) She's going to want that. And, And if she's a woman, a human, even though she's the last thing God ever created. Woman is the last thing God ever created. He created the world, light, darkness, all these animals, all this vegetation. Then he created man and must have said, I think I can do better than that. So he created a woman. She's woman. Should not, is not God. Just in expecting us to do the same thing with him. So here's this man that thinks he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. He is separated. He's doing all the stuff that he thinks the word says. But in his separation, he's actually persecuting the one he thinks he's worshiping. So here, here we get the word. We see the word. I, 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 I'm sorry. I, I, I know, I know at times I say stuff that people think I'm being critical. I'm not, I'm not trying to be critical. It, but, but it, it, it's gotta be said. We cannot continue to live in darkness. We're in darkness. We're supposed to be in light. When you're following tradition rather than the word of God, you're in darkness. So, Jesus personally, audibly speaks to a man and gives him a pattern and a commission and a job description. For his involvement in the kingdom of God to see the lost saved. And, and last year, I, I said this yesterday, I, I know I've read these verses. I know I've read these I know I have. I've read the book, book of Acts many times. I know I've read these verses. But I had never seen these verses before. Just last year, as I was studying and writing the syllabus for the first call to war. I had never taught these verses. I have never heard these verses preached on in almost 67 years of the United Pentecostal Church. And I, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm, I'm putting myself in that same category. How? How have we missed this all these years? No wonder we're frustrated. But the problem is, knowing it, doing it's not the same thing. Because if you apply these things to your life and your ministry, 
It will rock your present world. It changes everything. Praise God. The first and foremost part of Paul's commission was to remove the blindness from the eyes of the lost. This was a mandate from God requiring Paul's participation in spiritual warfare for the sake of the blind lost. The opening of the eyes as a part of Paul's calling is a supernatural work. In every other reference to the figure Figurative opening of the eyes of the blind in scripture. It is a spiritual work done by the power and the authority of God's spirit to enable the blind to see, believe, and understand the truth about God and salvation. Therefore, opening eyes must be the focus of Paul's ministry. It's the first step in any person getting saved. As we will see, All of Paul's marching orders are sequential. Each one is dependent upon accomplishing the previous step. Without him being used of God to open the eyes of the spiritually blind, nothing else specified in this verse can occur. And of course, you know the verses. Said Corinthians 4, chapter, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid that them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. This is, this is, this is an amazing thing here. The word blind. Here does not mean total darkness. Very few blind people see absolutely pure darkness. And in this Greek word that's translated blind here, it is literally the word for opacity or opaque. Now you have to imagine this in your mind because there's no windows in this auditorium. But you've seen windows and doors that were opaque. That means uh, they were created to let light in, but you couldn't see either way. That is the idea that the Lord is trying to communicate to us When he says the lost are blind. It doesn't mean that their darkness is the total absence of light. It means they are blind in the sense they cannot see clearly. They cannot discern clearly. They cannot understand. In fact, opacity is far more deceptive than darkness. Now, you may never had this problem as a kid, but most kids do. The lights are off in your room, and there you are, 
And there's just barely enough illumination in the room that everything in the room is completely thrown out of proportion. And then the next thing you know, your mind begins to imagining stuff. And you see stuff. And once, get this now, once the imaginations start, the feelings will show. Why? Because imagination always produces emotion. And there's a lot of that we blame on the devil that's not devil at all. Imagination will produce emotion. And the next thing you know, that which is not threatening at all in the illumination of the sun shining in the windows of your bedroom or the lights all on in your bedroom, it's just a chair or it's just a whatever, in that low, low illumination, it's all so exaggerated that imagination turns it into monsters. I'm telling you about the lost here. I, I can't tell you the number of times. I, it, I guess my spiritual heritage is, heritage is debating. Brother D.L. Welch, who was the pastor of the church my mother was attending, uh, he was a famous debater in the 40s, 50s, and 60s in the United Pentecostal Church. He had many debates against uh, Church of Christ preachers and uh, and Trinitarian Pentecostal preachers. And I'm talking about in big auditoriums, the full formal thing with seconds and a moderator and a whole auditorium of people, and they would take turns getting up and debating their points and, and whatever. And, and, and th- this was a big deal. And, and I've always loved being a debater. In fact, frankly, uh, I, I could easily see that I would have, uh, <laughs> uh, could, could have ended up a lawyer, but not somebody just wrote up contracts and stuff. I would want to be in the courtroom. I would want to be there where I could argue. And I, and, 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 you know, and that's how God gave me a revelation of the truth. Because I started out, uh, my, the beginning of my, the, the first academic year at the Naval Academy and we'd end up, we're supposed to be studying, we'd end up in each other's rooms and, uh, and there would be rooms where you, that guys would go and talk about women and there's other rooms that you'd go and you'd talk about politics. And then there were other rooms you'd go and we were talk, they were talking about religion. And I always ended up in those rooms. And, and I started out very confident because I had gone to Sunday school and I knew Acts 238 and one God and I would wade in, buddy, and we'd get to going and I found out quickly how little I knew about the Bible because I, I came up against some guys that really knew the word from their perspective. And I found out real quickly, I couldn't prove what I believed. So, that February of my first year, my mother gave me a study Bible for my birthday, and that's when I prayed the prayer I talked about the other day, and began to study the Word. And, 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 and as I studied the Word to find what truth was, I would, I would go back to the lab 
Those discussions were the laboratory. And I would take what I was learning and I'd try it on them. And, and then, you know, in the beginning, they'd keep coming up with more stuff and I'd go back and start over. That didn't work. That, that wasn't right. And I would pray and I would study and I'd go back and go back to the lab and put it to the test. And it took about two years till they didn't want to talk to me anymore. Because they didn't believe what I said, but they couldn't any longer argue against it. Well, I was, I, I, I wasn't trying to win anybody. I wasn't. I was trying to know what truth was. These guys were helping me. Whether or not they ended up saved, that wasn't my problem. I was trying to end up saved. I was trying, I wanted to know the truth. So I wasn't even considering what impact this was having on them. And then one day, one of my classmates that was in my company came up to me and said, I want, okay, I'm ready to be baptized. I said, what? He said, I want to be baptized. <laughs> Duh. I said, why? He looked at me like I was crazy. He said, I've been listening. Well, I wasn't trying to convince him. I wasn't even considering that there were guys listening. I was trying to find truth. And I was using the laboratory of debate to find out if what I had was truth or not. Well, it ended up without any conscious effort to do so that there were seven midshipmen got baptized and received the Holy Ghost. And that wasn't even the, that wasn't even what I was trying to do. I wasn't trying to make converts. I was trying to become a convert. I have said many times, I went to the Naval Academy, a third generation Pentecostal, left there a first generation apostolic. There are no second and third generation apostolics. You can be a second, third, fourth generation of Pentecostal. But apostolics are only firstborn. You got to become... It's got to become first generational with you or you're not apostolic. The problem was when I came to town, that was still my soul winning method. Debate. But this was different. I was dealing with heathens here. All the people I'd been witnessing to, both at the Naval Academy and then down south while I was in flight training, going to church and winning people, they were all believers of some kind. So I could debate them and and convince them and they'd come to church, see? Some of them would. I mean, after those midshipmen got baptized, I thought that was the way to do it. So that's how I always witnessed. It was the debate. If you agreed with me without debating me, I, I, I felt disappointed. So I came here to debate. I was, I came here to do the same kind of soul winning method. And I got really frustrated because I'm trying to prove the Trinitarian's wrong. Somebody didn't even know what the Trinity is. He claims he's Trinitarian, but he didn't know. So I, I, I ended up, before I realized what I was doing, I would teach them the Trinitarian doctrine so I could prove it wrong to them. 
I would teach them what it was they said they believed. So that I could then debate them. And prove it was wrong. Or I would tell them why they baptized like they did. So I could prove the reason they baptized like that was wrong. But here's what I discovered. That there were so many times. No matter how well I explained it. No matter how airtight I nailed it down. I was looking in the blank eyes. That didn't have a clue what I was talking about. They didn't argue with me. They couldn't argue with me. But they didn't understand a thing I was saying. Not because they weren't intelligent. I've encountered people with doctorate degrees in my 42 years here that didn't even know there was an Old and New Testament in the Bible. In 42 years, I have never personally encountered anyone that could spell the the word Pentecostal without help the first time. Heathens. And I say that affectionately. I pray for those that have to deal with all those Save folks. Trying to get them to believe the truth. But the point all that long story is about. Is that. We weren't getting anybody saved. Till that first prayer meeting. I'd never heard. Are you kidding me? Binding and loosing. You're joking. I never heard anything about all that. Nobody ever preached to me the lost were blind. They were just rebellious and stubborn and unbelievers. They just needed to be convinced. And I heard a tape by Brother Billy Cole talking about how he'd gone to Thailand. And they had baptized a bunch of denominal people there. But none of them had gotten the Holy Ghost. They'd baptized almost 500 preachers and thousands of of, uh, uh, of their followers, but nobody had received the Holy Ghost. And he, and he told how God spoke to him that he and his wife needed to pray and defeat the prince of Thailand. And he talked about how they fasted and prayed and how the uh, anointing of the Lord came and, and how they, 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 they bound the prince of Thailand, commanding him to loose the minds and the hearts, spirits and lives of the people and et cetera, et cetera. And he said, when that break took place, They had a meeting, and almost every one of those preachers got the Holy Ghost in one meeting. Just boom. And and many, many, many of those saints did. And then those preachers went home and prayed through almost all of the rest of their saints. And I listened to that tape. I never heard anything like that in my life. But I'm thinking, what I'm doing is not working. So the last week in November 1971... He, they had prayed and fasted seven days, and I thought, well, I work for Billy Cole. Maybe it'll work for me. So, I mean, that's about as spiritual as it was. I didn't know anything else to do. So we began to fast and pray for those seven days. Had a little Cape Cod-style house. It looked Cape Cod-style, if you don't know, looks like it's one story, but the attic area is finished. You, you have to be careful where you walk, though, because the wall is like four feet high and then it comes up on a slope. And so if you're walking and praying with your eyes closed, you're going to run, you're going to run your head into the roof, right? So there were, there were about seven of us, uh, that was in the church at the time. Uh, people, some of them moved in a few that we had prayed through in other locations because we couldn't get them prayed through in our building. And, 
And we were praying and we prayed and fasted. And I didn't know what I was waiting. I didn't know what I was waiting on. And it was that the seventh night. There was a spirit and anointing of authority that came on me. And I bound the prince of Annapolis and commanded him to loose the hearts and the minds and the souls of, of the lost of Annapolis. And, uh, and I, I loosed the Holy Ghost and the angels of God because the angels were reapers. And I loosed them to go forth and reap a harvest of that city and lead the hunger to us and the hunger to, uh, and us to the hungry. And the very next weekend, which was the first weekend of December, we prayed through our first person in our building. And before the month was out, we had prayed through 11 people and 10 had gotten baptized. And the last two of those were brother and sister Libby. Now, I've had people look at me and say, well, it was just coincidence. It was coming. I know, I knew the difference. You could feel the difference. I, I, I got the Holy Ghost at age 12 in Jacksonville, Florida. And at that time, under that pastor, while my dad was stationed there, all the altar workers in that church were the teenagers. I didn't even realize how strange that was till over the years I watched. I've never seen that situation again. Where the only altar workers were teenagers. The adults sat back and watched. So I got the Holy Ghost on the Sunday night after my 12th birthday. The next Sunday night I was in the altar praying with people who received the Holy Ghost. I thought that was normal. It was the way it was supposed to be. So I, well it is supposed to be normal and that is the way it's supposed to be, but it's rarely ever like that. So, uh, I, I learned right away how to be used of God to help people receive the Holy Ghost. I'd been an evangelist and had people get the Holy Ghost in every revival. And in most of the churches I'd preached at the time, it was the most number of people they'd ever had get the Holy Ghost in a revival. So you understand my background. For 12 years, I've been praying people through the Holy Ghost. So to come to this city where I'm called to build a church and have services and pray for people and they could not get the Holy Ghost. Everything I'd learned, everything I'd prayed, everything I'd tried, nothing worked. It didn't gradually change. It didn't work at all. Like I said, the first person got the Holy Ghost, he'd been coming about a month. He was a backslider. He had already had the Holy Ghost. He was a Marine. Uh, I'm not going to go there. So anyway. <laughs> so he could, we could, I, we could not get him prayed through. He'd been coming about a month. There was a rally at Brother McIntyre's church up in Baltimore in Essex, Maryland. We took him up there. He went to the altar that night, five, ten minutes max. He got the Holy Ghost. It was so easy. Had another lady, Sister Deberry. We'd, we'd reached her on the bus ministry. We, we were out. We had a little Volkswagen van. We were picking up kids for church. And she came. Came to the altar. Could not get her prayed through. And Brother Artie Johnson this is years ago now, 19, fall of 70, uh, 71, excuse me. Uh, he was doing a Holy Ghost seminar in Alexandria, Virginia. And we drove, my wife and I and a couple other people, including Sister DeBerry, drove all the way over to Alexandria for that. And she got the whole, 
the Holy Ghost that night so easily. It was ridiculous. But we had prayed with Ed Null, and we had prayed with Sister Deberry over and over and over again in our building, and it, it just it didn't work. It didn't work at all. But after that prayer, binding the Prince of Annapolis, boom, just like that. Just, I mean, just like that. I knocked on brother and sister Libby's door. They were the last two. I knocked on their door on the Wednesday between Thanksgiving, between Christmas and New Year's. My mother-in-law was, was here visiting because David had just been born a couple of months before and she was here for Christmas to see her grandson. And she had been an evangelist. I told that already. She was an evangelist preaching a revival in Jacksonville when I first saw my wife. My wife was traveling with her mother during the summer doing evangelistic work. And so I said to my mother-in-law, kind person that I am. I said, you're welcome to come see your grandson. But if you're coming, you're preaching. I don't care if it is the holidays. You're here, we're going to have revival. Because we'd had a breakthrough just a few weeks before. I'm not, I'm not chucking all that off. Okay, you, you play with the baby during the week and I'll do the visitation and then you can come preach. So I, I, I knocked on brother and sister Libby's door and they invited me in. And they were hippies. I won't say any more about that right now. But here I am. I, I practically got the buzz cut. When he tells the story, he said, when he looked at me, I was the squarest guy he'd ever seen in his life. You talk about God using opposites to reach opposites. But I sat there with those people after, after the experience for 15 months of talking to blank eyes of intelligent people that it was like I was speaking a foreign language and they could not understand what I was saying. I sat there with those two people and, and, and they were pulling it out of me. I violated every principle of, of witnessing I have ever taught in my life. I, I I couldn't stop. I talked about Acts 2.38, what repentance was, baptism was, receiving the Holy Ghost, talking in tongues, the coming of the Lord. Uh, I mean, you name it. I, I Really, I, heaven, hell, the whole thing. Four hours. And, and, and this stuff is rolling out of me and my mind saying, you need to shut up now. You're going to ruin this. You're telling them too much. I couldn't stop it. It just rolled and rolled. Well, you know, it's, it's five o'clock. I've been there since one. I, they're not through, but I got to go. And I looked at him. Him and his wife were sitting there and I, I looked at him and I said, well, what do you think? And he looked over at her and said, well, Linda, what do you think? She said, I think we ought to look into this. And he turned and looked at me and said, what should we do? I said to myself, I've heard that someplace before. I read where somebody else said that one time. 
I come, I got home, I come busting through the door. I found him. I, literally, just like that. I found him. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful of my mother-in-law, but that old southern Pentecostal spirit looked at me and said, who did you find? I said, I found Cornelius. She said, now don't get so worked up because you'll be really disappointed if this doesn't work. Something rose up in me and I said, we'll see about this. Well, we had church on Thursday night, Saturday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night. All through the holidays. That was our normal scheduled services. So, because the only way I knew to build church was have church and invite people to church and, and preach to them. And I wasn't going to do that once a week. I wanted more opportunities to invite people to church. So, I had, that was Wednesday. I'd invited them to come Thursday. You know, they had a previous engagement. I said, well, we got church Saturday night. They said, well, we'll be there. I said, well, just come with your clothes, a change of clothes and a towel so you can be baptized. That's what I told them before I left on Wednesday. Well, Friday, I stepped, stopped. I, I, I was so frustrated with what my mother-in-law said. I stopped by Friday to see how they were doing. And, uh, he said, well, we'll see you tomorrow night. I said, okay. Well, if you know Brother Libby, uh, some, the Holy Ghost doesn't change some things. Service started at 7. They weren't there. <laughs> I won't go into any more of that. If you know him, you know exactly what I just said. So they weren't there. And my mother-in-law was sitting in a way she could kind of see the auditorium. She knew they weren't there. I didn't want to look at her, but I couldn't help myself. And I saw it in her eyes and said, I told you. Five minutes after seven, the back door opened. We're having service. And in they walk, white T-shirts, both of them in blue jeans. But under each, each of them had under an arm, a towel rolled up with clothes in it. And everybody in the place could see that. And I looked over at my mother-in-law and my eyes had to have said, I told you. (laughs) They sat there in that service. She preached, turned it to me for the altar call. I said, if you've come to be baptized through the Holy Ghost tonight, come. And they came and I had them stand because they were already living a repented life. They'd already been seeking God. They were not a part of a church. In fact, the first things he said to me when we sat down, when I walked in the house was, he said, I don't believe in organized religion. I looked at him and said, neither do I. I still don't. I'll leave that right there for now. And so they walked in. He came, they came down front and at the altar call and I'm standing there talking to Brother Libby. He's standing right in front of the, right at the, in the aisle. Sister Libby's standing kind of over here. He's standing right there just in front of where the opening between the two uh, pews were in this little building we were using. Standing right there. And I'm, and I'm standing there talking to him. And it's, the Holy Ghost kind of said to me, if you just shut up, I'll give him the Holy Ghost. And I looked. And the Holy Ghost was all over him. He wasn't praying. He was looking at me. I was talking to him. And I said to him, if you will just, if you'll believe God and just trust what I tell you, if you'll just raise your hands right now and open your mouth, God will fill you with the Holy Ghost. You'll speak in tongues. 
He closed his eyes, raised his hands, opened his mouth, and never ever said a word in English in prayer. He started talking in tongues just like that. He never heard speaking in tongues or anything like that before. Now, after I had spent about six months before, service after service, hour after hour, praying a man through the Holy Ghost who had already had the Holy Ghost, and the same experience with another lady didn't know anything about this, and they both received the Holy Ghost really easily someplace else. And then the Lord leads us to pray that prayer. And then the next month, 11 people, that doubled our church. More than doubled our church. You understand that? That more, that one month more than doubled our church. There is no way to discount what happened. Well, I gotta be honest with you. I, I've done that for years and didn't fully understand what it was. But according to what Jesus told Paul, what we really did was play the, pray the blindness off of people. And also what we did was we prayed the authority of the adversary off of them. We had people get the Holy Ghost, get baptized. I don't mean one a month. We were, we had three to five minimum get the Holy Ghost every month for the next three years. It started grinding down again, got hard again, and I didn't understand what was going on. And I said to, to the Lord, Lord, what's going on here? And he says to me, uh, Is it, aren't you in a city that's also the county seat? I said, yes. He said, well, you're now dealing with a prince vendor on the county. So we did it again, prayed and fasted. Holy Ghost came. We came against the Prince of Anne Arundel County. Same thing. The thing broke again. We had our first revival. Uh, the next revival we had after that prayer, we went like two weeks, had over 30 people get the Holy Ghost in, in, in two weeks. We'd never had anything like that happen. And about six months later, we had another revival, had over 50 people get the Holy Ghost in three weeks. That was a completely new dimension. That went on for a couple of years, just people getting the Holy Ghost, getting baptized. And then it got really, 78, 79, it got really, really hard. There was stuff happening. And we just felt like we're, there were, every once in a while, people, somebody get the Holy Ghost, get baptized. But the flow of visitors, the, it just dried up. The flow of visitors dried up. It was hard again to get people prayed through the Holy Ghost. So for, for, Probably about six months of 79. Off and on, we had, we had times of prayer and fasting and, and, and binding and loosing. And it wasn't in a specific prayer meeting that, that we felt the victory. Uh, the last part of, last part of November of 79, I had a, uh, I had a dream. And at this time, we had, a, we had a little building in it that we owned that had been built by the Jehovah Witnesses and had a front door, a very small foyer, and a single bathroom on each side of the foyer. And then there was a set of uh, glass doors that you could see through into the auditorium, and you walked through the auditorium. And then there was a platform all the way across the auditorium, and then there were two offices uh, behind the platform. And that's all there was to this building because the Jehovah Witnesses don't believe in Sunday school. So we were renting 
the Annapolis Senior High School Auditorium on Sunday mornings try to have Sunday school classes. So in this dream, I walked in the, the, uh, the front door of the church and there was this large snake, uh, that was in the, in the floor. I mean, he must have been this big around and he was, looked like he probably six feet or more and he had this strange black and gold pattern on him. And in the dream, I, I knew that I had seen that pattern, but in the dream, I didn't, didn't associate it. So I managed to get around him. I avoided him and went through the glass doors. And I got, when I got to the front row in the altar area, there were two more smaller snakes, just like the one that was in the foyer. And I, I, I don't know how I knew this, but, uh, I, I went, got by those two snakes in the altar area and, and crossed the platform and went in the office on the, uh, uh, right side of the, the right office over there. And there were three men in there. I don't remember who the other two were, but one of them was brother Ron Richards. He was here yesterday, uh, during the day. I guess he's not able to be here today, but he, he's part of this church now has been for all these years. Well, I said, guys, we've got snakes in our church. Help me catch them. I, I, I didn't know anything about this. I'd never heard anything. I'd never read anything. I never saw it. I didn't know anything. I didn't even know this was possible. But I don't know how Brother Richards knew this in the dream. But there was a a closet in that office. And he opened the closet door. And there was a burlap sack in the closet. And he grabbed this sack. Well, I wouldn't even know where to find a burlap sack. There wasn't one in our building naturally, but there was a burlap sack in that office, in that closet. And he grabbed it. Well, it was years later before I found out that there were guys that go on rattlesnake hunts in Texas. And they buy, they catch them and they sell them and, and whatever. And they use burlap sacks is what I've been told. Okay, so he grabbed that, uh, he grabbed that sack. We go out there and, and I hold the sack. And, uh, and Ron, he catches the snakes and puts those two in the altar and puts them in the sack. And then we walk out to the foyer. And it's only been the last three years or so that I even knew that this was possible to do. I'd never, I, pff, there's no way. I had, there was no way for me to have knowledge of this. But in this dream, Ron grabbed that big one. Behind the head. I don't know how I knew to do this, but in the dream, I, I just, I did it. I, I don't even know how I knew to do it, but I, it was not even a question. He grabbed that one behind the head and I picked the, I grabbed the tail and he let go and I popped that, that uh, snake like a whip. And when I did, his head flew off. When his head flew off, I woke up. And when I woke up, I immediately recognized the pattern on the snake. This Maryland state flag is very unique. The, uh, the, the grant, the land grant for Maryland, and it's the, it was the only, the only Catholic colony, was given to the, to Lord Baltimore, and his family name was Calvert. So there is a, a crest for 
the office of Lord Baltimore, and then the Calvert family had their own crest. Their crest is white, red and white, and the, 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 the Lord Baltimore crest was black and gold. And the Maryland state flag has those two crests duplicated in opposite corners. And that snake that was the, 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 the ones we caught and the one whose head came off, it looked like the pattern on them was like a diagonal swath out of that black and gold pattern. And immediately, I mean, this happened like in moments, not even a second or so after waking up. Immediately, the Lord said to me, I've given you dominion over the Prince of Maryland. Well, the first prayer I'd ever prayed in my life was for my dad's salvation when I was five years old. And that's another story I don't want to get into at this point. But my dad had been baptized the November before I was born in February. But he would not let God give him the Holy Ghost because he knew he was called to preach and he wasn't ready to do that. So he stayed in the Navy all the way till he had done 30 years and whatever. Well, he, he got the Holy Ghost that next month, December, on the last Sunday of the, of the year of 79. Beginning in January, uh, somewhere in that period of time, excuse me, we had given up the senior high school and we, we, we were during that winter, I don't know why we were trying to save money or whatever, but we would park our buses. The, the, the lot wasn't very big. It was a drive on each side of it and you could come around the back. You could probably put, oh, six to ten cars depending on how you parked them out there. And our baptistry was sitting outside the building. I mean, January, February, whatever, we'd have to break ice off of it to baptize people. And of course you always told them, uh, well, you'll be cold getting in, but you'll be warm coming out. <laughs> you didn't have to worry about them getting stammering lips when you baptized. It was really easy for them to get the Holy Ghost because they come up out of the water with stammering lips. But anyway, we would park our buses around the building and run an extension cord out to the bus and put a heater in it and have Sunday school in those buses. Well, after that prayer, almost immediately, it might have actually been the first weekend of January of 80. It was, we weren't doing anything different. We weren't, didn't have some big program going, but the visitors started coming out of the woodwork. If you got to church 15 minutes late, the ushers brought you right to the platform because there was no place else to sit. The entire building was cramped wall to wall. There was no altar area left. It was packed with chairs. And people kept coming. So we just bring them up and sit them on the platform. There were, there were several of those Sundays. Literally, the only place I had to preach was just a small area around the back of the pulpit. Because the entire platform was full of people. Well, you know what? I looked at that and I went, uh, something's happening here. Well, it wasn't quite that calm. I mean, it was amazing. It was amazing. And uh, we, we had like 30, 30 or so people get the Holy Ghost in fe- January and February. Well, on the 13th of March, 
of 80. We started a re- 11 or revival, ended up going 11 weeks, had five services a week. We baptized 397 and 405 of them received the Holy Ghost. Well, this was so out of the norm of anything I'd ever experienced. I made up my mind that if we were telling people's numbers, I was going to know in my own heart it was the case. So every person, if they, if we had this, we, we moved, we had moved into the YMCA for those services and we, they let us put our baptistry in a room downstairs below the gymnasium. We were in the gymnasium and, uh, we, we, um, I did all the baptizing because I wanted to know, I wanted to be able to look anybody in the eye and tell them whatever. So if they brought somebody to me, said they've already received the Holy Ghost, they're in lines. We were taking wet robes off people and putting them on people while they stood in line in wet robes waiting to get baptized. And if they said to me, that person had already received the Holy Ghost, I would not let them out of the water till I personally heard them speak in tongues. I didn't take anybody's word for anything. It wasn't against anybody, but I knew what was going on was so out of the realm of ordinary that I needed to know for myself that when people ask and I gave numbers that I knew they were absolutely 100% accurate. There were people that would get baptized, hadn't got the Holy Ghost yet, and almost every one of them got the Holy Ghost before they got out of the water. So we baptized 397 new people, 405 people received the Holy Ghost in that 11 weeks. And for that year, we had 551 people receive the Holy Ghost in 1980. And then we, we moved into a warehouse that would seat a thousand, uh, right at the beginning of 81. And, uh, we had a seven-week revival in the spring. We had 264, I think it was, received the Holy Ghost in that revival. And then that fall, uh, we went nine weeks with Richard Hurd and had over 600. And for the year, 1981, there were 1,034 people received the Holy Ghost. Now, the first year, uh, the, the evangelist, the 11-week guy, there was a lot of controversy about him. Uh, he said he had told that he had been in the Marine Corps and worked in intelligence. Well, w- when people aren't familiar with something, they hear what they think they hear, not what's said. And so the rumor was that he was saying he'd been in the CIA. He wasn't in the CIA. He wasn't even in the DIA. But all of the branches have intelligence people that are in uniform and uh, he was a marine and he was in intelligence and he had seen stuff and he had done stuff and he and i talked for hours during those 11 weeks and and it wasn't anything he said that wasn't absolutely uh accurate i knew all that stuff i uh, but but the idea was because he was having results when he went places and because he had a little abrasive style and uh, he was he actually was not very he was not very experienced when he came and preached for us. So he, he he was kind of abrasive. He didn't really know how to pray people through the Holy Ghost. He didn't know what to do with all these people getting the Holy Ghost. Really, honestly, he was a good man. He'd preach them in the altar and stand back and watch us pray them through because he didn't know what to do. So uh, that year we didn't have anybody from the district visit our services. Nobody. 
Nobody visited the services. Uh, the powers that be at the time had heard negative things about the evangelist. They were all misunderstandings, but, but and he felt like he had a responsibility to warn our brother not to get involved with that, which I don't have a problem with at all because the benefit to me was I knew these were all people that we were reaching in our city and that we were praying through ourselves. Uh, during, especially during Richard Hurd's revival, finally, uh, there were many churches that came and brought their people. And I'm more than willing to tell you that probably about half of that 600 plus were people from other churches. And we would get their names and addresses like we did with everybody. And we wanted to make sure that those churches had that information. But there were a 1,034 people that received the Holy Ghost in our services in our building that year. Now, you can't tell me that was a coincidence. You can't. I lived it. I saw it. I know what it was like before. I know what it was like after the prayers. I saw the differences. And it would be a legitimate question to ask, well, what's going on now? Well, I'll tell you what happened. When you see 1,585 people come into church and go through your fingers because you're trying to use a traditional church concept of having church and taking care of people that you didn't get out of the Bible, but you got it from heritage. We stopped focusing on primarily on people getting the Holy Ghost. We began a search and a quest for finding the apostolic structure for being able to take care of people and handle a large revival. And that's where we came uh, to the place that biblically there's no such thing as a single voice, single pulpit church. Not in the book. We also came to the understanding that scripturally there's no such thing as an autonomous church. Not full autonomy where there's nobody they're accountable to, nobody they have to answer to. It's not in the Bible. It's in our structure because our forefathers didn't trust each other. And uh, so we were all structured like that. But it's not Bible. And you can't have authority unless you're under authority. And I'm a district superintendent. And if you tell me there's authority in the United Pentecostal Church, I want to know what hold you got your head stuck in. If I had authority, brethren that refused to cooperate, I'd at least be able to have some leverage for their benefit to help them do whatever they need to do to, to participate, to be right. But there is no leverage there because there is no authority. There is no authority. And anybody says there's authority in the United Pentecostal Church, they're just absolutely so self-deceived, it's ridiculous. There's no authority because there's no accountability. As long as I preach the truth, don't commit adultery, and don't get charged with a felony, there's nobody can say anything to me about anything. That's not authority. There's no, there's no authority. And you can't have authority 
unless you're under authority. And you're not under authority if there's not someone in your life that can tell you no and you have to listen. And do you know how many good men there are? Preachers that are backslidden today for one reason and one reason only. They had no accountability. They were under no authority. And so here we were seeing an unprecedented revival. We were 125 faithful Sunday night attending men, women, and children on the first weekend of January of 1980. And we prayed through 1,585 people in two years. Single voice, single pulpit church. I had a couple of assistant pastors, but they were... Primarily helpers. There was no way. There's just no way. You can't do it. Now, if you just want one of those little small harvests like I talked about yesterday for your own personal consumption, you can handle it like that. But if you want an apostolic end time revival, can't be done like that. Can't be. It can't be. So the Lord gave Paul a specific pattern. I talked about Finney yesterday. I talked about Finney. I talked about how he would go in and pray. I talked about Frank Bartleman. You know how Frank Bartleman and his group got inspired to pray those two years all night until, until Zusa Street started in LA? Because they'd been following it the reports, and actually communicating by letter with Evan Roberts, who was the Bible school student that started the prayer meeting in Wales, that started the Welch revival, that had everything going on except the public acknowledgement that if you receive the Holy Ghost, you'll speak in tongues. Even though there is evidence that people spoke in tongues in the Welch revival, it was not a revelation at that time. But, but that entire nation and er, other areas throughout the world were inspired by the, the revival that was a prayer revival. It wasn't a preaching revival. They prayed nights after night after night till they broke the back of the spirit in Wales. And that inspired the prayer meetings in LA. That became the Azusa Street Revival. That was the Pentecostal Revival that affected the world. That eventually became the apostolic revelation that brought us here today. And those were prayer revivals. That's what we we call them. It was spiritual warfare. They travailed and prevailed until they broke that thing. That's why the old timers called it a breakthrough. And they called it praying through. What what were they breaking through? And what were they praying through to? And what were they praying past to get through? To have. 
They might not have used all this terminology. And it might have been something they were, I mean, how many times have all of us been doing things in the spirit? We didn't fully understand and God instructed us to do stuff. We didn't fully know why we were doing it. We just knew we were supposed to do it. And they didn't, they might not used all this terminology and they might not have approached it like this, but they were doing this. And the results are historical. I have been in services when there was prayer response like last night and the night before. So my statement is based on the fact that what the statement I'm about to make is based on the fact that I have never experienced services with that kind of response to prayer. But you hear what I'm telling you right now. The Holy Ghost told me in this meeting that we were moving into dimensions we've never been in before. And and on and on Wednesday night, there are people who have come to an understanding and are going to be much more likely to push back when they're being pushed against than simply becoming a passive victim of Satan's working against them. And then last night, last night, I believe that God has restored the spirit of prevailing prayer. I'm saying it. I don't have any evidence to, to, to base that on except what I heard before this meeting started and what I felt God doing in that service last night. I'm telling you, standing here right this moment, it was not a picture vision, but in, in my, in my, my spirit, in my mind, this, the entire atmosphere in this room was absolutely crammed with stuff that God would give to people and trust people with if they could ever learn to pray the crucifixion prayer of prevailing prayer. If we could ever learn to pray for it to matter enough that we would pray until we died out to selves and God could trust us with that and we would still be saved. Because you hear me right now. It is, it is a mistake to ask for stuff and believe for God to give you stuff <coughs> that, that will destroy you. If you ask for a fish, if you ask for bread, will he give you a stone? If you ask for an egg, will he give you a scorpion? <coughs> if you ask for a fish, will he give you a serpent? And I'm going to paraphrase that. If you don't know you're asking for a serpent, <coughs> should he give it to you? And maybe it's not a serpent in itself. Maybe it would just be a serpent to you if you were given it at your personal level of spirituality and conviction at that moment.
The scripture says concerning the man Christ Jesus, who in the days of his flesh offered up prayers with strong cryings and tears. Was he praying, begging God, oh please? He's the son of God. Was he praying, begging God? Were those tears sorrow over the fact that God might not give him what he's asking for? No, no. Those strong crying and tears were an expression of how desperately his flesh wanted to be submitted to the Spirit and see the things that he was being shown and that God wanted to do. If the Son of God had to learn obedience through the things which he suffered, doesn't it make sense that God would give us a desire for something so that he could use our desire for that to motivate us to pray in a way we would normally pray, laying ourselves down and bare as we prayed for that thing. You know, we, we have, we, we, we've always had, I guess, one or two ladies in the church who were barren in the sense that they had not had children, they wanted children. And uh, those ladies, almost every one of them, somebody's prophesied to them at one point or other that they would have a child. Some of them still don't have a child. Did God miss it? Or did the Lord give them a promise of a child as the catalyst to a desire so they would do like Hannah and pray themselves through to the place that they could receive the child and be saved? It's probably been 25 plus years now. Again, when we were in this building, there was a prophet, first and only time he'd ever come here. We'll never be back. I'll just say it that way. Don't have any problem with the giftings. He did the giftings. He used the giftings. But when it was all over with, he used what happened to promote himself. When miracles are the prelude for an offering, for money. Miracles are supposed to be to open the door for the message. Miracles are not supposed to open the door to take advantage of people's awe of the miracles so you can get their money. And he did. <clears throat> and, and of course... The problem was this, he had to have the miracles or he couldn't get the money. And there was this couple in our church, they were really a good couple. And they had been married 10 years and no child. And uh, they were a part of the church and involved, but there, I, I, I always knew there was an element in them. They had never fully given themselves over to God. They, 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 they conformed to what was preached but it had never become their conviction. Smart people, 
talented, uh, highly skilled, sweet, friendly, kind, but they were never totally sold out. And this man of God came through one night. He called him out. Brought him up front. Prophesied to him. Said, you don't have a child. You've been married. I don't know if he quoted the exact number of years, but you know, you've been married a long time. God's promised you a child. You don't have that child. And, uh, it was his thing. I, I was really uncomfortable with this, but he would, he would take it, the microphone. And he would not touch ladies with his hand, but he would touch them with the microphone in the areas he was praying for them for. I was really, really unhappy with that. But he, he touched her, her abdomen with the microphone and said, in less than a year from now, you're going to have a child. Well, guess what? In just a few months, she was pregnant. In about nine and a half months or so, ten months after he prophesied, they had a child, a boy. But it wasn't long as their shepherd that I began to realize how big a mistake that was because it wasn't long Till their God stopped being Jesus and became that boy. And, and after a while, because, because of the, the focus here on revival and being committed and being involved and whatever that they had pretty much cooperated with up to that point, they couldn't stay. So an opportunity came to him to be able to move South to another church, to another place. He ended up starting his own business, did real well. And for a while, that was a new church and it was a little less in, intense, some would call it, a little less focused. They found a pretty comfortable place there, but even there they couldn't make it. Today, neither one of them go to an apostolic church and their son in his formative years was not raised apostolic. Because you see, they were given a promise that they wanted. They just didn't want to pay the price to receive it because paying the price was what was necessary to keep them saved in general. And God was using the desire for a child as the thing to give them enough motivation to pray through to a new level of commitment that would have kept them saved. Paul, in this commission I've given you as minister and, and martyr or minister and witness that I've chosen you out of these people for and I'm qualifying you and I'm going to send you back to them. The first thing you've got to do is you've got you, you've got to turn them 
because their eyes are blind. You got to open their eyes. You got to open their eyes, Paul. You got to open their eyes. There has to be prayer. And I said it last night, that word persevere in John in, in Ephesians 6:18. If if you it, it the definition of the word perseverance is persistency. And persistency is doing something over and over and over again with focus and intent until you get what you're persisting for. That's why Finney, if you read Charles Finney's conversion story, he was not a believer, but he was being trained to be a lawyer, working under a Mr. Wright, who was a lawyer in the city in upstate New York that he was living, where he was living. And he would go to the local church because it was the moral and civic duty of upstanding people in that town to go to church. And that's where you made business contacts. Well, he didn't just go to Sunday services. He'd go to the prayer meetings. And he'd sit and watch and listen. And, and, and he tells that he wondered why it was that they prayed so much it got virtually no results. And, and he would talk to some of the members one-on-one and say, you know, if I really believe what you guys believe, and I believe prayer works, if I really wanted God to do what you say you want him to do. I would pray until it happened. He's ignorant, but this is, he didn't know anything about God. He wasn't even a believer, but this happened. And finally, somebody got sick and tired of him telling them how to do it when he wasn't trying. And they looked at him and said, prove it. And the story is that he went out in the woods by himself. And his whole purpose of going out there was he was going to prove this work. And he tells how the first hour, two or three, nothing happened. Nothing happened. He wasn't feeling it. Nothing happened. But he said after this period of time, all of a sudden, totally unexpectedly, he was visited with the presence of God. And he began to weep. And he began to confess We call that repentance. He began to repent. And this went on. He said this went on until until he felt like he had completely emptied himself out. And he said, and then when that finished, there was a shift. And he said there was a boldness and a confidence. We call that faith that came to him. And he began to pray for specific things. And he would pray for those things and pray and stay there and pray until he had this assurance that he had been heard. I don't remember how long the prayer meeting was. Don't hold me to this number, but it seems to me like he had been out there over eight hours. But when he came out of those woods and went back, he wasn't like those people. He had gone beyond them in one prayer meeting. That experience 
became the basis for everything that Charles Finney was and everything that happened through Charles Finney. He called it prevailing prayer. He called it prevailing prayer. It was just spiritual warfare. And the advantage we've got today is the Lord is revealing to us from the scripture the the understanding of the elements of all this so that we're not blindly feeling our way along in it trying to figure out where we're supposed to go next, what we're supposed to say next, how we're supposed to pray next. No, now, today, we have more knowledge and we're just missing the want to. But if God can baptize us with the want to, with the determination, now connected with our knowledge and our understanding, There's no limit to what God can do. There's no limit to what God can do. There's no limit to what God can do. We just have to finally become convinced prayer works. But we've got to get in our mind that we're not praying To convince God of something. That God wants us to pray. So he can convince us of it. So that we will then believe him. With such confidence. That we will then continue to pray. But participating with him as a partner. Joined together in his yoke. While we pray. And see him do the things. That he wanted to do. And said he would do. And told Paul that he would work with him to do in Acts twenty six eighteen. <laughs> Why do you think it was that there was twenty four hour a day church in that converted stable on Azusa Street for over three years? Why? Because they broke into a realm that not only, not only were they convinced, but they broke into a realm where they were seeing things happen. And, and you know, I don't believe anybody lived in that building 24-7. But there was always somebody there praying and they were always waiting on God to speak through somebody, whoever was there, God would do it. The story is that rather than William Seymour conducting services and leading the ministry out of his office to the platform like we've come to do in some big production, he spent his time with his face in a shoebox and only pulled his face out of the shoebox when God gave him specific 
direction of what he was supposed to do. You know, you can say, well, I'm not worthy of that. Or you can say to yourself, God is no respecter of persons. And I'm not going to be a spectator. I'm going to be a participant. And if God's going to do it through anybody, he's going to do it through me. And I'm not settling for less than that. And whatever I have to pray or however I've got to pray for him to do whatever is necessary to be done in me that I might be able to be used like that and still be saved when it's over with, so be it, Lord, but here I am. We're going to break till 1 o'clock and you can do whatever you like. You want to pray? You're welcome to come pray. You want to get up and move around a little bit? I, I, my instinct would be to call you to prayer, but I'm not doing that. You and do what you need to do. I, I can't say right this moment, pray, I got something I got to do. Uh, but So I'm not judging you if you don't stay and pray. But if you're feeling something stirring in you right now, why don't you just find some place to talk to him a little bit? Why don't you do that? Thank you.